If you had the power to do anything in the world, what would you do? That question is central to a debate game that I play from time to time with my students. The thought experiment is designed to teach individuals about the competing philosophies of utilitarianism and deontology, but ultimately reveals to students that anything, even the most well-intentioned statements, can be converted to evil by those who are looking to do so. For instance, a typical starting point for the game is the statement that, if I ruled the world, I would make it so that no one would die. That seems like a well-intentioned thought. But if no one ever died, our population would quickly outstrip the planet's natural food and land constraints. That would doom the vast majority of us to a life filled with continuous wars, or worse, perpetual hunger. Sure, none of us would die, but living constantly on the verge of starvation for eternity sounds an awful lot like what hell looks like. Plus, the decision to make it so no one would die wouldn't reverse the aging process. It is believed that the human body can't function past 127 years. Thus, the first speaker of the game has just doomed us to living well past the point that broken hips will have prevented us from even shuffling our feet due to the intense arthritis that comes naturally with age. Perhaps there is a reason that we aren't gifted with the power to do anything in the world, but from time to time there emerges individuals who appear to, at least momentarily, have that very power. In 1801, Napoleon would join their ranks. Would he bring about perpetual war or smooth the path to peace? Would he improve the lives of his people or seek out his own fame and fortune? How would the social classes change in response to his policies? What would happen to the rights of women living beneath one of history's most misogynistic men? We'll cover all of that and more in today's episode. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the fifth of eight in a series regarding Napoleon Bonaparte. Episode number five, The Consolidation of Napoleon's Dictatorship. Napoleon's coup went off with barely a hitch securing the members of the directory without firing a single shot. Next, he had to win over the hearts and minds of the Parisians who had suffered beneath five different ruling regimes, each of which had been toppled within a single decade. In order to form a lasting government, this next phase of his power grab would require deaf-nuanced politics rather than military coercion. Historian Alan Forrest claimed as much, writing that the coup of 18 Brumaire was a complex and carefully orchestrated affair, involving a range of political factions and interest groups. Napoleon's ability to win on both types of battlefields is one of the things that made him truly special. He first sought to secure the generals of France, summoning them and demanding their loyalty. 
only Bernadette was unwilling to pledge loyalty to Napoleon, for which the would-be despot had his brother Joseph shadow him for the rest of the coup. He next neutralized the governor of Paris by blatantly lying to him that director Paul Barris was a part of the Corsican's governing plans. On the morning of the 18th, Napoleon attempted to have his wife Josephine lure director Gohir with an invitation for an 8 a.m. breakfast. The time triggered Gauthier's spidey sense, as all past invitations to the Bonapartes had occurred promptly at 10 a.m. Rather than refuse altogether, the coward sent his wife to spring the trap. Meanwhile, Emmanuel Joseph Sirius, Napoleon's closest thing to a partner in the coup, worked his political magic within the Legislative Council of Elders to waylay them via the use of obscure parliamentary procedure. Sirius, one of the five directors, thought that he was driving the day's events and sought to, quote, bring in Napoleon to his own efforts by legitimizing him via legislative mandate as the commander-in-chief of all troops in the Paris region. To accomplish this, he played on the council's fears of a Jacobin resurgence, arguing that only a strong military leader could prevent the immediate return of revolutionary violence. He also used his own deep reservoir of political connections and persuasive skills to sway key members of the council to his side. Sirius's action proved to be a critical step in the success of the coup as it granted Napoleon a legitimate role in the government, allowing him to use his military power in the open to help overthrow the directory. But there were two branches to France's legislative system, and the lower house, the Council of 500, began to question the events that were happening around them. But by this point, it was already too late for legislative intervention as Napoleon had already been appointed the commander-in-chief. He even sarcastically swore in the hall of the Council of Ancients to solemnly uphold the Republic. From there, the little corporal collected his new army, fully aware that his reputation as a military genius preceded his arrival. With the army at his back, he approached two of his three remaining targets. Directors Gauthier, and Jean Molin. Approaching the podium, Napoleon calmly explained that the directory was no more, as Sirius and Roger Ducos had both resigned their commissions. He then told a bold-faced lie to them that Paul Barris had also resigned, dissolving the five-man executive branch. Gohier managed to put the pieces together, a task made easier after his wife had hastily scribbled a note urging her husband to avoid Napoleon's breakfast party, at which she was still confined. After Gauthier's pushback in the front of the chamber, Napoleon had no choice but to place the men on house arrest. Boris had known something was afoot, and thus remained outside of Paris on the day of the coup. Napoleon sent another key figure of the takeover to deal with his former patron. Charles Talleyrand, 
the man that would become Napoleon's foreign minister, was given a full two million francs to bribe Boris. But the director caved before any bargaining even began, and Talleyrand pocketed the full two million, patting himself on the back for a job well done. Historian Frank McLinn sums up the end of the day's events, writing that, All this time, the usually volatile Parisian population had not stirred a muscle. Night fell on the scene of apparently total triumph for the conspirators. Bonaparte's military stranglehold on the city was complete. While most celebrated the bloodless coup, Napoleon coldly stated that today has not been too bad. Tomorrow we shall see. He slept with two loaded pistols beneath his pillows, a clear sign that he lacked confidence regarding his ability to hold on to the reins of the French government. The members of the Council of 500 woke up on the 19th with clearer vision than they had displayed on the previous day. They were particularly convinced that they had been lied to regarding the imminent threat that had required their appointment of Napoleon as commander-in-chief. For the coup to truly be bloodless, he would have to secure the assembly's approval. It was here that Napoleon's nerve finally broke as he burst into the chamber interrupting the debate over his authority. The simple act of his intrusion was an illegal action. Worse, his threats to the councillors resorted to the slurs of Caesar, Cromwell, and Tyrant being hurled at him from those assembled. But Napoleon intended to walk in the footsteps of Julius Caesar. To the general, it wasn't an insult. It was his destiny. He raised his voice once more at those assembled before him, urging them to, quote, Remember that I walk accompanied by the god of war and the god of luck. At which point he was summarily dismissed by Sirius, who whispered in his ear, Leave the room, general. You no longer know what you're saying. The debate over his actions continued, but word regarding the hostility that Napoleon faced in the assembly had already leaked out onto the streets of Paris. Fearing that he was losing control, he reapproached the Council of 500 at 4 p.m., this time flanked by two officers. McLinn details the incursion for us, writing that the conspirators were in a clear minority here. Napoleon's appearance created a sensation. Once again, he was present illegally, in full uniform, and troops could be seen through the open door. The councilmen began climbing over benches, overturning chairs, desperate to lay hands on the trio. The immediate cries of get out, kill, kill, were finally replaced by the ominous calls for Bonaparte's outlawry, or allure. Deputies laid hands on the grenadiers and began beating them up. Napoleon himself was seized and shaken like a rat. The general soldiers saved the man, while his little brother saved Napoleon's dream of consolidating rule. Lucien Bonaparte, whom Napoleon had never gotten along with, 
happened to be the current president of the Council of 500. He tore off his seals of office and rushed outside, extolling the assembly's guard to do their duty, as assassins in the pay of England had just tried to assassinate General Bonaparte. There are two reasons that the lie worked. First, military men are trained to follow orders. There would be no reason for them to suspect that the president of the council would be a part of the plot to bring down the institution. The second reason that the subterfuge succeeded was that Napoleon had emerged from the chamber with blood on his face. Lucian neglected to reveal that the blood was from a scratched pimple on the 30-year-old general's face. Facing a rush of guardsmen desperately looking for the hidden assassins that could not be found, the deputies literally jumped out of the windows and fled through the gardens. McLinn reveals to us that the next day hundreds of red togas were found caught up in the branches of the trees lining the assembly. An hour later, Lucian brought in 50 loyal councilmen, just enough to make a quorum, and at 2 a.m. the group legitimized the takeover, swearing an oath of loyalty to a triumvirate of provisional consuls. Napoleon and the two remaining directors Sirius and Ducos, a heavily propagandized version of the day's events, including the supposed assassination attempt from the Brits, went to press the next day. Napoleon took the title of First Consul, an old Roman term which had once defined Julius Caesar's role as the head of the government. In fact, it was Pompey's declaration that he was a consul without a colleague that had triggered Julius's crossing of the Rubicon to depose his former ally. Historian John Wolfe writes that the title of consul allowed Napoleon to present himself as the continuation of the Republican tradition of government that had emerged during the French Revolution. It also gave him a veneer of legitimacy that he needed to rule effectively. Historian David Bell concurs, writing that, by taking the title of consul, Napoleon was able to position himself as a symbol of stability and order in a country that had been racked by chaos and instability for years. It was a shrewd political move that helped him solidify his power. From the very beginning, the newly appointed first consul began to scheme for how to remove his two other fellow executives. He convinced a frustrated Sirius to retire to the countryside by gradually wearing him down. The former director turned coup leader had been put in charge of writing yet another constitution for the French state. It was a harrowing process one that resulted in Sirius gradually shifting his position to an advocate for a more democratic and representative system of government. This shift inevitably put him at odds with Napoleon. Frustrated with the length of time it was taking to enact the new document, Sirius tendered his resignation after an agitated Napoleon exclaimed that he could get a new constitution ratified in a week if only Sirius would retire. But his coup partner was only one obstacle. 
as the man had maintained strong alliances within the legislative branch. Napoleon wore these men down with the old military strategy of victory by attrition, forcing them to attend 11 successive meetings, which he purposefully prolonged deep into the night. McLinn explains that he wore down the opposition of Sirius and his faction, prolonging meetings deep into the night and seeking to destroy his enemy through sheer physical exhaustion. In this contest, the 30-year-old Napoleon held all the cards. He had physical magnetism and presence. He could concentrate on details for hours on end without tiring, and he impressed everyone with his pithy common sense and exceptional intelligence. The new constitutional document was expertly ambiguous, simultaneously able to be read as establishing a truly democratic state, or one that could be manipulated to create a dictatorship. It created a first consul with executive powers, flanked by two other consuls that served in an advisory role. They were in turn to be checked by four different assemblies. McLinn reveals that Napoleon's brilliance was to paralyze the legislative arm with a maze of checks and balances, leaving the first consul, himself, with virtually untrammeled power. The constitutional document went to a nationwide vote and passed with more than 3 million votes in favor to a mere 1,562 no's. As one might imagine, there were a number of voting irregularities, including a forced rounding up of the yes votes in each precinct, and dumping in more than half a million army votes in favor of the document, even though those particular men had never actually been given the chance to vote. On December 12th, General Bonaparte officially became First Consul Napoleon. Unfortunately, he had inherited a nation that was in complete turmoil. McLinn sets the picture for us, revealing that he had inherited a disastrous financial legacy from the directory, and economics is less obedient to the dictates of consuls and premiers than our political factions. When he became first consul, the economy was in shambles. It was widely reported that only 167,000 francs remained in the state coffers. Highway robbery was rampant. Industry, trade, and finance were in ruins. There were beggars and soup kitchens in Paris. The navy was non-existent. The desertion rate in the army was at epidemic level. And yet Napoleon had to find the means of waging war for another full year. While the general had been stranded among the pyramids in his ill-fated Egyptian adventure, Austria had resumed its war with France, retaking nearly all of the territory that Napoleon had claimed during his ultra-successful Italian campaign. In this instance, Napoleon was the ideal leader to emerge from Paris, as only he could recognize that military victory would solve all of France's difficulties. He began to immediately reorganize the French army, 
reducing desertion by ensuring that their wages were paid up to date as well as making sure that they were well supplied and provided a slew of new wide-eyed recruits eager to obtain glory. He secured the funds needed via loan by way of extorting a filthy rich banker who was placed under the threat of indefinite imprisonment. His intent was to make Germany the main theater of operations, but was forced to focus on Italy after a popular general balked at the marching orders. Although this seems like a mere footnote in history, it serves to show that Napoleon had not yet fully consolidated his new powers. Although the general knew the battlegrounds of Italy well, the war was immediately hindered by the fact that Austria had also decided to make northern Italy the centerpiece of their own war efforts. Thus, the coming conflict would be strength versus strength. The First Consul attempted to focus on his new political role overseeing the renewed conflict, but continually found himself pulled to the front. For instance, he proclaimed to a secretary, I'm bored with this convent, and anyway, those imbeciles will never take Fort Bard. I must go there myself. Once there, he solved the issues plaguing the French forces right away by getting his artillery around the enemy positions, by ordering the troops to spread straw and dung along the streets to ensure that the dragging of their heavy artillery would not alert the nearby sentries. Once the heavies were in place, Napoleon bombed the fort into submission. His arrival at this key junction of the wars captured for posterity by Jacques-Louis David's masterpiece, Napoleon Crossing the Alps. The work of art was commissioned in 1801 by the King of Spain as a gift to Napoleon. In the painting, the First Consul is depicted wearing his signature uniform and holding a raised sword in his right hand. His horse rears up dramatically, adding to the sense of motion and excitement. The landscape behind him is depicted in shades of gray and blue, with the snowy peaks of the Alps visible in the distance. The artwork naturally evokes the 16th century work of art by Jacopo da Pontormo, depicting Carthage's greatest general Hannibal crossing the same Alps. The truth of the story, however, was far less interesting, as Napoleon crossed through the pass on the back of a mule, rather than astride a rearing steed. Instead, the emperor spent most of his time slipping and sliding uncontrollably on the downhill stretches. Once he arrived on the leeward side of the Alps, he attempted to recreate his prior military successes, but barely managed to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat at Marengo. It was at this battle that the last-minute arrival of French reinforcements turned the tide after a vicious 12 hours of combat. The victory resulted in a peace agreement, despite the fact that the Austrians remained in good shape to continue the conflict. The resulting Treaty of Luneville, signed on February 9, 1801, formalized the end of the War of the Second Coalition between the two European powers. 
Under the terms of the treaty, Austria recognized the French Republic and ceded its territories in Italy, Belgium, and the Rhineland to France. The treaty also recognized the independence of the Batavian, Helvetic, Cispine, and Ligurian republics, which had been established as client states of France during the course of the war. In exchange for these concessions, France agreed to respect the sovereignty of the remaining German states. The treaty didn't outlaw meddling, however, and the truth of the matter was that France would continue to exercise a significant degree of influence over them. The treaty also established a general framework for future negotiations between France and other European powers, which would henceforth be based on the principles of equality, reciprocity, and mutual respect. Historian David Chandler writes that the Peace of Luneville confirmed France's position as the dominant power in Europe and signaled the beginning of a period of relative stability on the continent. The entire exercise had been a gamble for the newly appointed First Consul, as every moment outside of Paris allowed his political enemies to further their inevitable moves against his regime. Still, he tarried for a bit in his old stomping grounds of Milan, taking on a noted opera singer as his newest mistress. The victorious general moved her with him to Paris, but was forced to break it off after finding out that his new mistress was soon cheating on him with a French violinist. After all, cheaters always expect you to be loyal, particularly while they themselves are being unfaithful. Napoleon's second Italian campaign was over in just weeks, and the people of Paris were once again overjoyed at the speed at which peace had been restored. McLinn writes, The peace-thirsty population of Paris seemed to take collective leave of its senses, with illuminated windows, fireworks, gunfire, and huge popular demonstrations in favor of the First Consul. To many of their recollections, it was the nation's first spontaneous public rejoicing in nine years, a time that encompassed the entirety of the French Revolution. England tried to sabotage the newfound peace by luring the Austrians back onto the battlefield with promises of generous bribes. Failing that, they continued to harass France at the edges, recapturing the city-state of Malta in 1800 and before taking full control of Egypt in 1801. French and Dutch colonies soon came under fire in the East Indies. To deal with the issues, Napoleon engaged diplomatically rather than militarily, working his personal connections to Russian Tsar Paul I to form a League of Neutral Nations, comprising of Russia, Sweden, Denmark, and Prussia. The nations immediately closed off the Baltic region to British trade in an attempt to bring peace and stability to the continent. The British responded by bombing the city of Copenhagen with no fewer than 30,000 shells. 
Rather than driving a wedge between the Allies, the appalling assault led to Paul suggesting to Napoleon that the two each send a 30,000-man army on a cross-continental expedition to quote-unquote liberate India from England. Before the arrangement could be finalized, however, British assassins had managed to murder the Tsar, strangling Paul with a scarf in his bedroom. Worried at the potential for global escalation, France and England signed a treaty in 1801 that became known as the Peace of Amends. To negotiate the agreement, Napoleon sent his brother Joseph and his faithful ally Talleyrand. Although Joseph believed that lasting peace was possible, Talleyrand, experienced in foreign affairs, could immediately tell that like the French, the British were merely playing for time, establishing much-needed breathing space before the inevitable resumption of hostilities. Despite his concerns, the treaty was signed on March 27, 1802, officially bringing an end to the hostilities of the long-running French Revolutionary Wars. The agreement provided for a mutual restoration of all territories captured by each side during the conflict, with the exception of certain British colonies which would remain in French hands. Under the terms of the agreement, England recognized the French Republic and the French restored Malta to the Hospitallers, which had been in British hands since 1798. The French also agreed to withdraw their troops from the Papal States, as well as Naples. At this moment, European peace was achieved, although McLean writes that it lacked permanence, as the real barrier to a lasting accord with Austria was fourfold. Napoleon had won fame and glory in Italy and regarded it as his own personal province. His oriental complex meant that he was bound to intrigue in areas which sooner or later would entail conflict with Austria. He was arrogant enough to think that he could defeat both Britain and Austria, provided he made Russia and Prussia his allies. And most importantly, making war was Napoleon's reason for existence. It can thus be seen that it was Napoleon himself who was the real barrier to a European peace. Still, this truce allowed Napoleon to focus his full attention on governing France. This was a mixed bag for the country, as he purchased Louisiana from the Spanish during this period, while also sending a disastrous expedition to Haiti, the end result of which would be the only successful slave revolt in human history. Toussaint Louverture was the leader of that revolution, will be the central figure in our next series. Napoleon began the process in 1800 to rewrite the entire legal code for his nation. McLean tells us that the most enduring monument for the years of the first consulate was the Code Napoleon. It appealed to Napoleon to think that he could be not just a great general like Caesar, Alexander, and Hannibal, but also a great lawgiver, 
like those other famous names of the ancient world, Liturgius, Hammurabi, Salon. He was intimately involved, attending 57 out of the 109 meetings to discuss the code. Many of those meetings lasted until 4 a.m. Napoleon felt that the audacious task was necessary as the revolution had turned the French into so many grains of sand so that it was now his task to throw upon the soil of France a few blocks of granite in order to give a direction to the public spirit. Unfortunately, the new legal code continues all of the first consul's biases. It heavily favors the wealthy, which were the primary source of Napoleon's popular support. In fact, a citizen emerged with minimal rights if they did not own any property. These individuals were banned from joining unions, survived beneath constant police supervision, were forced to carry identification cards, and imprisoned if they went on strike. Worse, however, was the fate of women. Beneath the code, women were denied the right to own property, control their own wages, or make legal decisions without the permission of their husbands or male relatives. Women were also forbidden from serving as witnesses in court, and divorce was made more difficult to obtain for women than for men. Napoleon himself famously stated that the laws concerning women should be the same everywhere, since they are half of society. Yet the code he introduced did not reflect his sentiment. In fact, McLean directly blames Napoleon for the exclusion of women's rights, as the general proclaimed that women these days require restraint. They go where they like, do what they like. It is not French to give women the upper hand. They have too much of it already. Divorce, which had been previously possible via mutual consent, now required not only husband and wife's consent, but both sets of their parents. Cheating women, of which Napoleon's wife and a multitude of his lovers were, could be imprisoned for a period of two years, only to be released early at the desire of their disgraced husband. Power was placed firmly into the hands of the patriarchy, as fathers were gifted the right to imprison rebellious children. Article 213 enshrined into law a legal duty for a wife to be obedient to her husband. Article 217 outlawed women from disposing of any property without her husband's prior consent, while 219 stipulated that the husband had the right to choose where the family would live. Worse, Article 371 automatically granted fathers custody of any children as part of a divorce settlement. This law alone ensured that thousands of women would avoid exiting abusive marriages for fear of being unfairly denied access to their children. Historian Susan Connor writes that the Code Napoleon was a reflection of the patriarchal society in which it was created, and its treatment of women was a reflection of the limitations placed on them in that society and Lynn Hunt, author of The Family Romance of the French Revolution, 
calls it out for what it was, namely a manifesto of male power. After authoring the legal code for his nation, Napoleon attempted to get his own house in order, beginning with his habitually unfaithful wife, Josephine. The two had reconciled and for the most part resided in harmony during this interwar period. The relationship nearly ruptured for good, however, when Napoleon was informed that his wife had racked up more than 1.2 million francs worth of debt purchasing 900 dresses during just one calendar year, as well as more than a thousand pair of gloves. To put that in context, one would have to change their clothes more than twice a day while never repeating a single outfit over the course of a complete rotation around the sun. After paying off his wife's tab, he placed her on a generous allowance and demanded that she begin to behave to the level that her new station demanded. Frustrated with the restrictions, Josephine turned informant to Joseph Fouché, the head of France's secret police. After his successful coup, the unhappy couple moved into the Tuileries palace and spent their first night in the bed of the deposed King Louis XVI. Napoleon's imperial ambitions were thus immediately on display for everyone to see. Everyone, that is, except the Bourbons. Louis's brother sent the first consul a letter, asking when Napoleon would be returning his throne to him. To which the little corporal replied, I have received your letter. I thank you for your kind remarks about myself. You must give up any hope of returning to France you would have to pass over 100,000 dead bodies. Sacrifice your private interests to the peace and happiness of France. History will not forget. I am not untouched by the misfortunes of your family. I will gladly do what I can to make your retirement pleasant and undisturbed. Without an internal shortcut to power, the would-be next Louis roused allies in the problematic Vendée region of France. But Napoleon, currently lacking any foreign enemies, utilized the military to violently put down the half-cooked Bourbon revolt. Lacking an avenue to overthrow the first consul, his opponents launched a series of attempted assassinations instead. The first attempt on Napoleon's life came in October 1800. A group of royalist plotters conspired to blow up his carriage with a well-placed bomb along the road between the palace and Paris's most famous opera house. However, Napoleon's keen eye spotted the suspicious package, and his life was saved when he ordered his carriage to take a detour. Rather than taking out the dictator, the explosion merely resulted in the death of several innocent bystanders. Historian Simon Schama described the scene, writing, The explosion shattered the glass in nearby windows and filled the streets with smoke and debris. But for Napoleon's quick thinking, the outcome could have been much different. 
The plotters were soon captured and publicly executed. But this show of state force only served to fuel the royalist cause, emboldening other would-be assassins. In December 1800, Napoleon again narrowly escaped assassination. This time, the plot was led by a deranged man named Francois-Joseph Carbone. Carbone somehow managed to slip past Napoleon's guards and into his private chambers with a sharpened file. But Napoleon's valet heard the scuffle and rushed in to subdue the attacker before he could do any harm to the first consul. Historian Andrew Roberts described the scene. Carbone was wrestled to the ground and taken into custody. Napoleon, shaken but unharmed, reportedly remarked that he had been closer to death than he had ever been in a battle. That is saying something. Keep in mind that this was a man who had been knocked over by the wind of a cannonball, had had multiple horses shot out from underneath him, and had been left for dead on a battlefield with an English pike lodged in his inner thigh. In October of 1801, a group of disgruntled generals plotted to kidnap and kill Napoleon in their own coup attempt. The plot was discovered, however, and the ringleaders were swiftly arrested and executed. But this would not be the last time Napoleon's rule faced an inside threat. In 1804, a group of royalist conspirators hatched a plot to blow up Napoleon as he crossed a bridge. But the traitors were subsequently betrayed, and the authorities were waiting for them as they rigged their explosives. They were rounded up and executed, but not before one of them, a man named Cudol, famously declared, the dagger is the only way to deal with Bonaparte. Finally, in 1804, Napoleon faced perhaps his most famous assassination attempt. A group of conspirators colluded to blow him up during a ceremony at an opera house. But once again, Napoleon's instincts saved him. As he made his way to his box, he noticed a suspicious package and ordered it removed. The bomb exploded harmlessly in the courtyard. Historian Alan Shorm describes the scene. The explosion was deafening, but miraculously no one was hurt. Napoleon, always the showman, emerged from his box unharmed and proceeded with the performance as if nothing had happened. With all of these attempts on his life, it is no wonder that Napoleon once remarked, I am surrounded by enemies, and I sleep with a dagger beneath my pillow. Despite the repeated attempts on his life, Napoleon managed to successfully win over the people of France. He was able to achieve this by first restoring the Catholic Church. The French Revolution had essentially outlawed the Catholic faith in France in favor of secularism, a fact that was greatly resented by the nation's rural populace. The Church's priests had been first forced to swear an oath of loyalty to the state, those who refused were imprisoned and placed upon lists for execution. The church's property had been sold off to the highest bidder, and Pope Pius VI had remained a virtual prisoner of the Directory of Rome, a government that had been established to rule over the Roman Republic after Napoleon had conquered the territory in the first Italian campaign. 
McLynn reveals that the papal prisoner was denied his servants and even the use of his hands. He was forced to eat like an animal from a trough and drink from a pail. Guards refused to allow him any privacy, not even a partition to shield his chamber pot. He was often deprived of proper nourishment and medication and could hardly have imagined a more miserable existence. Despite his age and infirmity, the Pope never lost his composure or his faith and was always polite and dignified in his dealings with his captors. Upon his passing, Pius VII was elected by the conclave, immediately receiving word from the First Consul that there was an opportunity to restore the Catholic Church of France. For Napoleon, it was an opportunity to enlist more than 40,000 priests to begin preaching support for his regime. The two sides entered negotiations, during which Pius came away mistakenly feeling that he had gotten the better end of the deal. The subsequent treaty, which was officially signed only after Napoleon had threatened to forcibly occupy Rome, became known as the Treaty of Concordat. By signing, Napoleon recognized the Roman Catholic faith as the religion of the majority of his people. The position of first consul would be granted the right to nominate bishops, but his power was checked by the Pope, who was the only one that could ratify their appointment. French priests would continue to be paid by the state, so the citizens could continue to avoid weekly tithes. The biggest win for Napoleon was that he wanted to be obligated to return any of the church's former property. Still, he wasn't prepared for the hornet's nest of angst that was stirred up as a result of rolling back the French Revolution's desperate attempt at establishing a purely secular government. To reassure those upset, Napoleon agreed for the state to also pay the salaries of any Protestant priests as well in an attempt to claim that the French state wasn't playing favorites. McLinn tells us that the Concordat was the purely political act of a man indifferent to religion, but conscious of its role as social pacifier. It successfully neutralized royalist opposition for the next eight years. Although Catholicism had been restored, the Easter Mass at Notre Dame in 1802 showed that the nation had forgotten its faith in the decade that had followed the revolution's dismantling of the church. The Mass was held in celebration of the Concordat, and thus Napoleon obligated all of his generals to be present in order to display the state's unity beneath the agreement. However, none of the men assembled knew any of the prayers or how to conduct Mass. At the point where the priest elevated the host during the consecration, the senior officers actually presented arms, almost firing off a round in the 450-year-old building. With so many guns present, one would have feared for Napoleon's life if the priest had let loose an Easter bunny for the occasion. One of the first consul's chief allies, General Augural, was among those disgusted by the signing of the Concordat sarcastically remarking to his boss that the only thing missing from the Easter service were the million men who died to overthrow what you are now setting up again. 
Next, Napoleon set about bringing back those who had fled the country during the revolutionary upheaval. 40%, more than 40,000 of the refugees, took him up on the offer of amnesty, returning to set up shop and rebuild the French economy. By introducing new measures of direct taxation and presumably limiting Josephine's purchasing power, he was able to balance the budget by 1802. He established an official Bank of France and granted it full monetary control, allowing him to print new coinage adorned with his own image. After which, he went on to stabilize the rest of the economy via classic state intervention. Taxes were kept low as the regime continued to sell off national property, as well as living off of the loot obtained from prior military campaigns. He kept a close eye on the price of grain, which had toppled previous governments. Heavy state subsidization kept the prices low, but when they did spike, he resorted to ordering a complete media blackout on the subject, depriving his people of knowledge regarding anything that was outside of their own personal eyesight. The economy that he created was heavily centralized, and as a result, the first consul rarely left Paris during these interwar years. He spent a portion of his time reforming the school system in order to place an emphasis on mathematics and science, while completely erasing the teaching of modern history. Although Napoleon generally governed from the political right, McLinn tells us that his system was a good forerunner of Lenin's democratic centralism, in that his police state kept close tabs on potential enemies of the state with around-the-clock surveillance locked onto the retired Sirius and the exiled Boris. At one point, he even fired his younger brother Lucien as Minister of the Interior, despite the fact that Napoleon's coup would have never succeeded without his siblings' critical intervention. His achievements emboldened him to propose that his ten-year term, of which he had only used up the first three years, ought to be extended for life. He again turned to a national referendum in order to mask his despotism beneath the thin guise of democracy. The referendum posed the question, should Napoleon Bonaparte be consul for life? The result again involved blatant irregularities, but came back with a staggering 3.6 million votes in favor against only 8,374. One soldier preserved in his personal journals the following exchange, telling us that one of our generals summoned the soldiers in his command and said to them, Comrades, it is a matter of nominating General Bonaparte Consult for life. You are free to hold your own opinion. Nevertheless, I must warn you that the first man not to vote for the consulate for life will be shot in front of the regiment. Now fully assured of his power, Napoleon neutralized the assemblies, confiding in his brother Joseph that the Senate was destined to be a body of old and tired men incapable of struggling against an energetic consul. From this point, his imperial tendencies only grew. 
he began holding military reviews in the same manner that the Bourbon kings had, arriving in brilliant red uniform to inspect his ceremonial consular guard. Dinner parties were held in the opulent ballrooms of the ancient regime's palaces, and elaborate balls in his honor were held at the opera house. For such occasions, he rewrote the nation's formal dress code for both men and women, including silk knee breeches and cocked hats for the men, while the women of the court were suddenly obligated to don white dresses. The color was determined to be a visible symbol of their loyalty to the new regime. The choice was also intended to distance Napoleon's regime from the excesses of the previous aristocracy, who had been associated with the opulent and colorful fashions of the ancient regime. White, on the other hand, was seen as a color of simplicity, purity, and republican values. It was also associated with the ancient Romans, whom Napoleon was obsessed with. The shift towards white was also part of a broader effort to create a new French identity based upon the principles of the revolution, one that could compete with the traditional European powers. By promoting a more modest and egalitarian style of dress, Napoleon and Josephine hoped to visibly signal their commitment to the ideals of the revolution as part of their wider efforts to win the support of the French people. Each attempt to publicly signal loyalty to the revolution was undermined by his behind-the-scenes actions, each of which placed Napoleon on a pedestal unmatched by all but the Sun King. He moved his personal residence to the Palace of St. Cloud, and spent millions of state revenue, making it every bit as visually striking as Versailles. The centerpiece of which was his placing of David's Napoleon crossing the Alps, which hung beside what was known as the most beautiful staircase in all of Europe. Installed during the reign of Louis XV, the stairwell was constructed entirely of marble, with each step having been carved from a single block of stone. The railing was made of gilded bronze, complete with intricate detailing and decorations, including garlands of flowers and sculpture of angels. Napoleon's birthday was even determined to be the nation's newest public holiday. All of this was tolerated because Napoleon was the man who had brought peace to Paris. From 1801 to 1803, the nation overflowed with tourists, particularly from England, as France had been determined to be off-limits during the revolutionary years to anyone who didn't have a death wish. But alas, the time of peace excess was coming. By the time the calendar was turned to 1804, Napoleon, the first consul of France, would once again have to become known as General Bonaparte, as England was hell-bent on reigniting their ancient conflict with France. We'll cover the war for Europe's soul over the course of our next two episodes.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.